So I was thinking about the passage I want to look at with you this morning over these last couple of weeks. I was reminded of the number of very prominent Christian leaders with very public and very successful ministries over the last oh, five or six years who have pretty much vanished from the uh, public view because of uh, sinful behavior on their part, oftentimes losing not only their public ministries but uh, wives and families as well in the process. Just this past week I became uh, acquainted with two other situations that uh, reminded me of some of the truths that this passage touches on. One was a story about a man who uh, was a recovering alcoholic, had been dry for a period of five years, uh, on his honeymoon began drinking again and became so uh, disoriented and confused and off uh, track that returned from his honeymoon and wound up uh, a matter of a week or two having adultery with his wife's best friend, and in 16 days the marriage was over. Another girl in her mid-twenties uh, was told about who inherited a rather sizable family fortune in the space of six months and squandered it on cocaine and was living in near uh, poverty uh, circumstances. And when these kinds of things happen, when we, uh, through our own deliberate uh, moral choices, misguided and foolish and ignorant, uh, when we uh, kind of make hash out of our own lives, it's very natural at that uh, point to wonder whether there's any uh, use or any point in coming back to God. It's very natural to feel at those uh, times that our usefulness to God has uh, been wasted for good, that he is uh, upset and so uh, frustrated and angry with us that there's uh, no point in returning to him. Well, I think the psalm that I want to look at with you this morning, Psalm 130, has some uh, helpful words from the Scripture, from God, uh, for us in these uh, circumstances. The psalmist in Psalm 130 describes the situation in verse 1 out of which he wrote these words, thought these thoughts. Psalm 130, verse 1, the psalmist says, Out of the depths I have cried to you. O Lord, the metaphor that the psalmist uses here is a metaphor of a drowning man. By the depths, he is referring to the depths of the open sea. And he pictures himself as a man who is uh, drowning in billows and waves and water uh, that is far over his head and far over, uh, far out of his ability to save himself. And out of the situation in which he is uh, near death, uh, from drowning, he cries out to the Lord in his distress. Remember in our growth group once this last spring, we asked one of the men in the group I was doing, and he said, well, I feel like I'm about eight feet under looking for a snorkel tube. And it uh, struck me that that's a very similar metaphor to what the psalmist is describing here. When I was uh, four or five years old and learning to swim, I remember very vividly one afternoon, both of my instructors' attention was diverted for just a moment, and the backwash uh, swept me away from the edge of the pool beyond my reach. And I was sure that uh, I was a dead man and I was going to drown. And I can still, to this day, remember the flood of panic that, that overwhelmed me at that, at that point. That's the kind of feeling that the psalmist had when he wrote the words in this psalm. And he indicates in verse 3 that by using the word iniquities that he, uh, he got himself into this fix, that he had no one to blame but himself, his own 
stupidity, his own stubbornness, his own perversity had created the situation of near uh, catastrophe. And he had no one to blame but himself for the situation he was in. So this is truly a psalm for a drowning man, for those times in life when we uh, create our own uh, problems and create our own difficulties and dig our own our own holes. I think this psalm lays out for us a series of steps which we can follow to reclaim and to restore a life which has been shattered through our own deliberate moral choices. Because of the focus on iniquity in this psalm, this is called a penitential psalm. There are seven of these in the Psalter in which the psalmist expresses repentance and sorrow over his own iniquity, and this is the seventh of those. I believe there are five steps that the psalmist gives us that we uh, should follow in circumstances like this to restore and rebuild a shattered life. The first one I believe he gives to us in verse 2. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. The first thing that the psalmist instructs us to do when we have done this, when we've trashed our own lives through our own deliberate moral choices is to cry out to God that the most basic, fundamental, necessary thing we can do in those circumstances is to pray. And you'll notice the intensity of the psalmist's prayer. In the end of verse 1, he says, I have cried out to you, O Lord. Verse 2, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. Three times he expresses the intensity of his need and his dependence upon the Lord. And that's the first thing I believe the psalmist tells us to do, is that the first thing we ought to do is become involved in in intense and dependent prayer upon God. Now, the odd thing about this is this is almost exactly the reverse of our normal uh, instinct. Uh, When we have failed God, about the last thing we want to do is to face him. Remember once in seminary I had loaned a classmate, or a classmate had loaned me $20, and I had neglected to uh, repay this debt, and as time progressed, this became a heavier load, and I can remember distinctly, any time I saw him on campus, I would alter my route if necessary to give him as wide as possible uh, a berth, and that's our instinct with God. Uh, We feel like we ought to sort of clean up our act first before we bring ourselves to him. And we need to kind of clean up this mess and get things in order before we uh, resume talking to him. Uh, You uh, ladies remember distinctly in your dating uh, days that you would never be caught dead when the date came to the door in a bathrobe and curlers. It just wasn't on to... uh, open the door in that kind of condition. You made sure that your hair was coiffed and you were dressed and ready, presentable, before you opened the door. Well, that's good sociology, but it's very bad theology. And what the psalmist is saying is that the first thing we need to do is with all of our uh, refuse and all of our uh, dirt and grunge to come to the Lord just as we are and allow Him to be the one that cleans us up and sets us right. I think what the psalmist is recognizing here is that the only one who can deal with the problem of iniquity, the problem of sin in life, and undo what we have done is the Lord himself. There's no other place to turn. There's no other Savior. There's no other Deliverer who can help us at a time like this. God is the only one who is able to do so. I read a passage this week uh, out of uh, Chuck Colson's book, 
loving God. And in it, he uh, reports uh, the words of a state-employed uh, psychiatrist who worked in the prison system. And after a particularly exhausting day, he came into one of the prison fellowship instructor's office and slumped down on the chair and uh, confessed this to him. He says, I'll tell you, Reverend, I can cure somebody's madness, but I can't do anything about his badness. Psychiatry, properly administered, can turn a schizophrenic bank robber into a mentally healthy bank robber. <laughs> a good teacher can turn an illiterate criminal into an educated criminal, but they are still bank robbers and criminals. And what he is expressing, I think, is the same thing that the psalmist is saying here. There's no one else that can help us. There's no one else that can deal with this deep-seated root of stubbornness and selfishness if not for the Lord. Now, the word supplications in the end of verse uh, 2 is an interesting word. He says, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. Literally, the word supplication means a supplication for favor. It has the same root word as the Old Testament word for grace or favor, which speaks of God's extension to us of mercy, even though we do not deserve it. And what the psalmist is declaring is that the only uh, basis of appeal that he has in this circumstance is the Lord's grace. There's nothing in him that gives him uh, the right to expect this kind of treatment from God. He has nothing to barter with. That if God is not gracious to him, uh, his situation is hopeless. And I think we're tended in, we tend in situations like this, when we kind of dug our own grave, is to... Uh, barter with God. We might be tempted to point to our past track record and say to the Lord, well, Lord, you know, I've done pretty well up to this point. This is my first real major foul up, and uh, I really think it would be nice if you'd kind of let me off uh, this time in, in view of my good behavior. Or we say to the Lord, I know I really botched it this time, but I promise if, you will, if you'll pull my fat out of the fire here, I will never do this again. Uh, but the psalmist doesn't do that. He doesn't make any appeal to his past performance or any promises about his future performance. He says, Lord, the only hope I have is if you are gracious, if you will listen to the voice of my supplications. And he tells us why in verse uh, 3 that uh, his appeal has to be based on grace. He says, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The psalmist knows that if God kept track of his iniquities, that there would be no one who could hold his head up before the Lord. No one who could pass muster if the Lord retained or kept in his view or in his memory uh, our iniquities. I remember reading a story once about a woman who was on her deathbed. Her daughter was there. It's, uh, her mother had been a very loving, kind, uh, gentle person all of her life. And she was on her deathbed, and she opened her eyes at one point and turned to her daughter and says, Is it, is it really true that God forgives us all of our sins? And the daughter said, Yes, mother, that's true. And uh, mother, a uh, ex great expression of relief, and said, It's so good to know that. And she leaned her head back on her pillow. And the daughter was rather shocked at this, and she said in a rather surprised tone of voice, She says, Mother, what have you ever done that would require the Lord's forgiveness. My mother kept her eyes closed and said, that is none of your business. 
But she recognized, even the kind, gentle, uh, loving person that she'd been, that if the Lord uh, should mark iniquities, none of us uh, could stand before him. And I think there's implied then in this, in this third verse, the second uh, step in this process of restoral, and that is simply an honest confession before the Lord. Simply admitting uh, what we've done and accepting full responsibility for it. The New Testament word for confession literally means to say the same thing as. In other words, to say the same thing about our sin and about our behavior that God says about it. Means refusing to excuse our behavior, to justify it, to to paper it over, uh, to blame others, uh, refusal to excuse it on the basis of being hot-blooded or Italian or oversexed or undersexed or having our moon ascending into the house of Neptune or something like that. You know, simply accepting responsibility, calling what sin what God calls sin, without any reservations or excuses. I remember seeing a cartoon once about a boy who came home from school and his uh, report card had a string of straight F's on it. And he sauntered into the den and tossed his report card at his dad. And his dad looked it over and the son said, Well, well, Dad, what do you think it is, environment or heredity? <laughs> but uh, the psalmist knew better than to do that, to hide behind... Uh, all of the standard excuses that we use, just an honest confession that he was the source of the problem. We're on vacation uh, last year. My uh, two-and-a-half-year-old daughter and I were uh, sharing a uh, snow cone, and right in the middle of this uh, snow cone, uh, Janice stopped, and she looked up to me with this dead serious expression in her eyes and said, Daddy, I'm driving my mother crazy. (laughs) And I... uh, Still to this day, appreciate the honesty of that uh, confession. But, uh, but that's what the psalmist does: is the second step in this process of restoration is to call it iniquity, to call it sin, to call it wickedness or evil. Uh, the word iniquity here literally means to deviate from the path or to err, to to get off track. And another way it can be translated is with the word perversion refers to deviant behavior. Now, uh, we uh, have sort of grown accustomed to applying words like perversion and deviant behavior to sort of the grosser forms of sexual sin. But really what the scriptures are saying to us is that every sin, every act of willfulness, and every act of disobedience is perversion. It's, it's deviant behavior. It, it destroys our humanity and destroys others around us. And part of the process of escaping from a uh, situation we've created for ourselves is to honestly admit that and to call it what God calls it. Now, the third step, I think, is in verse 4, and that is to remind ourselves of God's forgiveness. The psalmist says, But, notice the contrast of verse 3, that if the Lord should mark iniquities, no one could stand. But the Lord doesn't do that. Instead, in contrast, there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. So the psalmist reminds himself that with the Lord there is forgiveness. So he reminds himself that God is not a bookkeeping God. He's not someone who marks iniquities and logs it in a book and keeps track of it. He's not a bookkeeping God. One of the most helpful verses to me in dealing with failure in my own life has been 1 John 1.9, very familiar verse to you. 
where John says, if we confess our sins, and there's the word that means to say the same thing, to call sin what God calls it, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. Now, when John says that God is faithful to do it, he means that he does it every time. He's dependable and trustworthy in this department. He's reliable. If you confess, he will forgive you every time, without exception. He's faithful to forgive us our sins. And also, John says that he is just or righteous when he does this. He doesn't forgive our sins at the expense of his justice. Uh, now, it's easy to think that what God does is he simply winks at sin or he overlooks it and he says, well, I understand, uh, don't let it happen again, it's okay, similar to what we do with, with others. Uh, we just choose to overlook it. But that would uh, represent a breach in God's justice. And God's justice, his holiness, demands that sin of every kind be punished. Well, what God has arranged to do in his economy is to offer a sacrifice on our behalf. And that's what uh, that's why John calls Jesus a propitiation not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. That Jesus is the one who satisfied fully God's wrath and anger. When Jesus hung on the cross and died that agonizing, excruciating, uh, painful, shameful, humiliating death, he died in our place. And all of our evil all of our greed, all of our selfishness, all of our lust, God imputed to his son and lashed him with the whip of his own wrath in that hour. And the penalty for our sin was paid. God took out all of his anger and all of his wrath and all of his judgment on his son so that he doesn't have to take it out on us. That's what John is saying. He is faithful and just to forgive us. And that's what the psalmist is saying, that with God there is forgiveness. If you look ahead to verse 8, you'll see that uh, the writer tells us that God will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities, every single one of them. In other words, there's nothing we can do, absolutely nothing that we can do that puts us beyond the pale of God's forgiveness. It's uh, sometimes easy for us to accept his forgiveness for some of the smaller things because we feel like, well, they're really not all that serious. But then when we do a biggie, then it's sometimes very difficult to remind ourselves, persuade ourselves, convince ourselves that God really does indeed forgive. But the scriptures are clear. He will redeem Israel from all of his iniquities, not just the minor league ones, but the major league ones as well. When David Reinstein was here last summer, he told me a story about a dog that he owned. One day this dog found a uh, dead bird and uh, dragged it up to uh, David. And uh, so when the dog wasn't looking, David tossed it into a nearby bush. And about five or ten minutes later, the dog had retrieved the bird and dragged it back to David's feet. And so he distracted the dog this time and threw it a little further away, deeper into the bushes. And Five minutes later, the dog brought the bird back. And finally, what David had to do is to go out and dig a hole in the backyard and bury that bird. And uh, he used that to illustrate what we tend to do with our sin. Uh, we keep dragging it back to God, and God keeps saying, uh, it's forgotten, it's forgiven. I've buried that sin. And so we need to remind ourselves as often as we need to remind others that God is a God of forgiveness and has forgiven us for everything that we have done. Now there's an interesting note at the end of verse 4. 
in that the psalmist tells us why God does this. Why does God forgive us all of our iniquities? What's his purpose in doing that? He says there is forgiveness with you in order that you may be feared. Now the odd thing about that is you think it would work just the other way around, wouldn't you? That if God forgave us, it would tend to reduce our fear of him. Take away that element of fear. But what the writer tells us is that God does it in order to promote in us a sense of fear, in order to create in us a fear of him. Now, the Old Testament concept of fear, as you probably are well aware, was not the cringing kind of slavish fear, a cowardly kind of fear, but rather by the word fear, the Old Testament writers meant a kind of awesome respect and reverence for God, that God wasn't just a good buddy you could drape your arm around, not somebody you could wrap around your finger, but someone who was holy and awesome and powerful and mighty. And the one who feared him, respected him for that, held the Lord in great esteem, had a sense of uh, reverence and stood in awe of the Lord. And that's what the psalmist says God does when he forgives us, is if we understand the transactions taking place, it creates in us a sense of fear, of holy respect and awe of God, and creates in us then a desire to live for Him, to please Him, to engage in, in godly and righteous and godlike uh, living. I remember coming across a uh, passage in the biography of Harold Hughes. Harold Hughes was at one point the governor of Iowa and later a, a senator from that state. And yet up to the point when he went into public uh, service, he'd known nothing but alcoholism and had reached a point, one stage in his life, where he planned uh, to commit suicide. And this is how the passage reads in his autobiography. With the shotgun resting on my stomach, I positioned it with the muzzle in my mouth toward my brain. Reaching down, my thumb found the trigger and I was about to push it. A terrible sadness filled me. I knew what I was doing was wrong in God's eyes. Yet my whole life had been wrong, and God had always been very remote. In a few years, my family would get over it, I reasoned. They would have an opportunity to rebuild their lives. But if I remained here, I would never change and only hurt them more. The thought came that I should explain all of this to God before I pulled the trigger. Then, if he could not forgive this sin, at least he would know exactly why I was committing it. Climbing out of the tub, I knelt on the tile floor and laid my head on my arms, resting on the cool tub rim. Oh God, I groaned, I'm a failure, a drunk, a liar, and a cheat. I'm lost and hopeless and want to die. Forgive me for doing this. I broke into sobs. Oh Father, please take care of Eva and the girls. Please help them to forgive me. I slid to the floor, convulsing and heavy sobbing. As I lay face down on the tiles, crying and talking, trying to talk to God, my throat swelled until I couldn't utter a sound. Totally exhausted, I lay silent, drained, and still. I do not know how long I lay there, but in that quiet bathroom a strange peace gently settled over me. Something that I had never experienced before was happening, something far beyond my senseless struggles. A warm peace seemed to settle deep within me, filling the terrible emptiness, driving out the self-hate and condemnation. 
My sins seem to evaporate like moisture spots under a hot, bright sun. God was reaching down and touching me. A God who cared. A God who loved me. Who was concerned for me despite my sins. Like a stricken child lost in the storm, I had suddenly stumbled into the warm arms of my father. Joy filled me, so intense it seemed to burst my breast. Slowly I rose to my knees and looked up to him in the awe of gratitude. Kneeling on that bathroom floor, I gave him myself totally. Whatever you ask me to do, Father, I cried through hot tears, I will do it. That's the same experience that the psalmist had when God forgave him, when he understood that transaction. It created him a sense of awesome gratitude and a desire to serve the Lord in fear. Now, the fourth step, I believe, the psalmist relates for us in verses 5 and 6. I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, indeed more than the watchman for the morning. The first step, the psalmist said, is to pray to God. It's the first thing to do. The most foundational, basic response we can make is to pray, to talk to God, to approach him, to ask him to help us clean up this mess. And secondly, the psalmist instructs us to honestly confess what we've done before him. And then thirdly, to remind ourselves of his forgiveness, to keep reminding ourselves of that until it sinks into our heart. And then the fourth thing I think the psalmist says here is once we've done that, the next thing for us to do is to wait patiently upon God. Wait for him to work to begin to put back the pieces of, uh, of our lives. I think one of the mistakes that we can make in a situation like this is once we have realized what we've done and confessed it, our desire to put things right is so strong that we can rush out and in a big hurry try to put everything back together all at once. And we may find that the people whom we have hurt and damaged in the past in the past are not quite ready to pick up where we left off. That the hurt runs deep, uh, so deeply that it takes time for them to recover. Uh, time for them to get adjusted to this change of heart and change of attitude in us. And we can make a great mistake by demanding or insisting or expecting that they forgive and forget uh, what we have done comes a time in the restoration process where we need to wait and be patient for, for God to work. A church I attended in uh, California, uh, one of the men in the church, a uh, businessman in the community, had had a, an affair over a period of time with his uh, secretary and eventually it got to the point where he deserted his family and, and ran off with the secretary to start a new life, leaving behind a wife and two children. After uh, several months of this uh, affair, he came to his senses, realized the desperate uh, thing he'd done and the hurt that he'd caused, and came back to his wife and asked God and his wife and family to uh, forgive him. But wisely, with the counsel, uh, good counsel of the elders of that fellowship, he didn't move right back into the house. They uh, suggested that he set up a separate shop in an apartment and that he begin to date his wife again, and so he did. For a period of eight or nine months, he wooed her back, he courted her, uh, dated her, just as in the days before they were married. And after a period of eight or nine months, he had won back uh, her respect and her admiration and uh, her love. 
And then, at that point, he was able to move back into the home and the family was restored. But during that period, he had to wait patiently for God to work, to restore and to, uh, to begin to patch up the relationships that had been damaged by his actions. Now, the psalmist also says in verse 5 that, In his word do I hope. I think the word, I think we could better retranslate this. The word hope, uh, just as the first verb in verse 5, has the basic idea of waiting, of patient waiting. And the word in can just as well be translated with the word for. The Hebrew preposition can be translated either way. And I think what the psalmist is saying here is that for his word I wait. In other words, in this process of restoration while I'm seeking to put the pieces of my life back together, one of the things the psalmist did was to wait for a word from the Lord, to wait for direction from him, to wait patiently until the Lord spoke and gave him uh, direction and guidance about how to proceed in, in, in mending things. When uh, Chuck Colson was in uh, prison serving time for his uh, Watergate offenses, it's a long, uh, agonizing period of uncertainty. He knew that his career in law was over. He was disbarred as a result of what he'd done. His political career was finished, and those are the only two things he knew to do. And so he was a time of great uncertainty for him. What was he to do when he, when he got out? And he remembers very distinctly when he was studying through uh, the book of Hebrews, coming across the passage in chapter 2, where the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus had to be made like his brethren in all things. Since the children partook in flesh and blood, he himself partook in flesh and blood. And it occurred to him as he was reading that passage that God wanted him to imitate the example of Jesus. And that possibly, just possibly, God had placed him in prison in order that he might be made like his brethren who also were in prison. That other brothers in the Lord who uh, had uh, done uh, 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 terrible things and been imprisoned for it. That he might be able to identify with them and understand the isolation and the depression and the loneliness and alienation of life in prison. And he began to get a glimmer then of what God wanted him to do with the rest of his life. That's what he did. He waited for a word from the Lord. And God, as he waited patiently, answered his request. Now the psalmist, I believe, uh, goes on in verse 7 and 8 to tell us the fifth and final step. And that is to minister to others what we have learned. It says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. That's the same verb in verse uh, 5, I think should better be translated, wait. O Israel, wait for the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. At the fifth stage is when we take what we have learned and communicate that to others who have trashed their lives and made uh, grievous mistakes with their lives and to communicate to them the things that we have learned about God's mercy and ability to restore, and to appeal to them to wait patiently upon God to, to work. The psalmist uses the illustration of the watchman in verse 6 to describe the kind of eager, patient expectation that we are to have. Any of you who have ever worked a graveyard shift know how uh, at about 4.30 or 5 in the morning you long for the day to break, and you wait expectantly for... Uh, 7 o'clock to, uh, to arrive and for the siren to go off. 
And you know it's coming. You know that day breaks on its way. But there's nothing you can do to hurry that process. No wishing will make those uh, make the uh, minute hand go around any faster. All you can do is wait patiently, expectingly, knowing that it will come. Well, that's the metaphor that the psalmist uses. Uh, he knew that God would work on his behalf. And he, his part was to wait patiently to do that. And that's the word he communicates to others who are in the same situation. Wait patiently for the Lord like the watchman waits for the morning. And what the psalmist had learned is that there is loving kindness, he says, that he is loyal to his people, compassionate with them. That's what loving kindness means. And that with him there is abundant redemption. That the key lesson that the psalmist learned, that he wanted to communicate to Israel, notice he's changed from the first person in verses 1 through 6 now to addressing Israel. The thing he wanted Israel to know, he wanted others to know, is that God was a redeeming God. That with God there was abundant uh, redemption. And the word to redeem means to, uh, to transfer ownership of something by paying the appropriate price. And what the, what, what the writer is telling us is that God has paid the price that will redeem us, uh, will restore us to usefulness. Uh, Ray Steadman tells a story about the time when he was in seminary in Dallas. He and his family used to drive out to Pasadena every summer to uh, intern. And he'd usually spent all of what they'd managed to save during the year on gas to get there. And he'd usually run out of money before they got to L.A. and had to sleep in the car a night and skip a couple of meals. And when they got to L.A., they were just flat broke. And the only thing he had of any value, he says, besides his wife, was his a typewriter. And so he would go into this pawn shop and he would hawk this uh, typewriter. And he pointed out that during the time that typewriter was in hock before he got his first paycheck and was able to redeem it it was uh, useless just sat around gathering dust uh, Ray couldn't use it he had no right to use it the uh, owner of the pawn shop couldn't use it couldn't sell it uh, and so it sat uh, useless on the shelf until the redemption price was paid and that typewriter could be released from custody and restored to usefulness put back to the purpose for which it was intended now that's what the psalmist is trying to get across to us here, that with God there is abundant redemption, that what he delights to do is uh, when we have uh, placed ourselves in, uh, in devastating circumstances by our own actions, he doesn't wish to punish us for that, but he delights to restore us, to take us off the shelf, to forgive us, to begin slowly to put the pieces of life back together and then to restore us to usefulness, to put us uh, back to work doing the things for him that we were intended to do. I'd like to have you stand with me, if you would, at this point. And just uh, close your eyes for a moment of uh, thought. There may be someone here who is here this morning who is not yet a Christian, does not yet uh, know the Lord. And perhaps you're here because your life is a mess, because of things that you've done, and you're looking for some answers. I'd encourage you right now in the quiet of your own heart to reach out to the Lord, confess to Him uh, the mess you've made of life, accept His forgiveness, and ask Him uh, to gradually restore your life and put it back together. Perhaps you are a Christian this morning and you've made similar tragic mistakes. 
and you've created for yourself uh, distressing circumstances. I would encourage you now to uh, confess what you've done, call it what God calls it, ask Him to forgive you and to restore what you've broken. Father, we're grateful for the revelation of this psalm that you are a God of loving kindness, a God of forgiveness, a God of compassion. I pray, Lord, that we would never take that lightly, that when you forgive us of our many iniquities, perversions, uh, that it would create in us a sense of awesome respect for you and uh, an admiration for you that though you have a right to judge and uh, to dispose of us, that you don't, that you love us and extend to us forgiveness. I pray that this, uh, these thoughts of your forgiveness of all of our iniquities would encourage us greatly this week and lift our sense of self-acceptance and uh, give us freedom and uh, hope and a delight in knowing you. Amen.